It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Britpits.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today I've got with me Matthew Jones. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Stuart. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Feels odd to be uh, finally getting you on the show. Uh, yeah. Feels even odder that Brian Hoffman and Mac aren't here as well. Yeah, where are they? I know, yeah, this has got to be the longest, um, you know, lead up to uh, to an interview you, that we've did, ever, that you've did, ever had. Right? Surely no one's taken this long to get on the show. Well, wait, was it 2014 or 15 when we first talked? I think it was, I think it was um, 13. 13? Because as I remember, we had a teaser saying, we had like a kind of like a work in progress teaser we were showing people saying we were going to film Meltdown the following summer. Or we, or we just filmed Meltdown. I can't Fucking remember. Hell. So you, you've not only, not only are, are, are you your longest lead time, you've actually been the lead time for the age of the podcast. I started <laughs> the podcast that summer. There you go. Yeah, unintentional. I'm, I haven't been working on it solid for those <laughs> five years. I have had other things going on, but yeah, we. It has been a long time, but I think that's kind of a. Uh, to the to the benefit of the final project that everyone gets to see, really. Well, I, t- I tell you what, we better, we better tell people what that is because at the moment yeah. we've not mentioned a single name yet. So you've made the documentary, the man from Mowat, yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's it. It's a documentary on James Lavelle. Okay. Is, um, yeah. So the first question is, um, because that's that's what the film is. It is that it's a documentary about James Lavelle. So we don't need any more than that for a synopsis. But I suppose. The first question is, why James Lavelle? Why did you do a documentary about James Lavelle? So there's, there's no one reason. Mm-hmm. There are several, as there's circumstances and several, several reasons behind that. First of all, you've got to go back to when we started this. We started this in late 2006. Mm-hmm. So to give everyone a sense of where you are, that's, that's almost pre-YouTube. It's pre-iPhone, isn't it? pre-iPhone yeah I think maybe iPhone one was about I don't know but the point is it's a long time ago and I I had I was out of uni and I'd started a little production company in my bedroom right with um with with a friend and we'd made a couple of shorts and we just you know when you're you know when you're in your in your mid-20s I was like 20 25 26 and you're like you know you're a young filmmaker I finished uni and I, I didn't do a uh practical filmmaking I did theory and I was just looking to get in stuck in and get involved into projects and I, I so I was just always on the lookout for things and my cousin said to me I need to introduce you to this guy who drinks in my pub um he's like this he used to run a label and he's got this band called uncle <laughs> and um they need a producer to do like this him and his him and his wife want to do like some stories about his tour about him about his next tour and they, and they need someone to help them put it together. So I was introduced by my cousin, a pub in East London called The Marksman. 
James rehearsed opposite Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the premises, which is a well known rehearsal studio, Indeed so is. that's how I was introduced. And it was initially going to be a series of online tour diaries, like kind of mini films, to put on the internet. And mm-hmm. and just because the internet was internet video was starting to take off at that point, um, and it just it went from there really. And so at the time, it was never going to be the Man from Mowax. It was never going to be a feature film about the Mowax label, about DJ Shadow, about introducing, about science fiction. And then, but but it became that through a process of research, um, because off the back of that tour, which was really fun to film, they said, "Why don't you stick around and record our, you know, record the process of making our next album, right? Which was just going to be where, which became <coughs> where did the nightfall? Mm-hmm. But that album took two and a half years, nearly three years to make, um, and ended on a bit of a downer. So that's kind of where that's kind of where it started. If that if that makes sense. No, it makes and absolute so, sense. So so in a sense was but, was the experience of working with him and getting to know him, uh, sort of more of a chance to sort of see the opportunity, to, yeah. do, to do something retrospective rather than into the future. And you got to think, two thousand seven. This is like for those who know that basically Moax was a record label in the nineties that James ran. It was a underground. Um, independent kind of instrumental hip-hop trip-hop but also other genres you know like influenced by acid jazz influenced by drum and bass influenced by you know techno um hip-hop all of these things kind of in 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 a kind of underground british way it was very very much connected to to Britpop, and they hung out with the same people mm. you know the Britpop were like the stars and james was like the underground music beneath that if you know what i mean no totally um, i mean like like we were saying before we started there was there was Britpop as we knew it, and then there was this whole other kind of cocaine fuel dance scene. Because <laughs> un- un- unlike yeah. you know, like Acid House, which was all MDMA and, and LSD, yeah, the sort of late nineties was really just about eyes popping out your head and punching the air as hard as you can count uh, <laughs> with uh, with all the fury you can muster. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, but so, but at the time in two thousand seven, it was that was that label had that label had fallen apart. Yeah. Which the you know the reasons for that the film documents, but in 2007 it was like very much a dirty word, you know. It was something that James did not want to talk about. Mo Wax and DJ Shadow and DJ Crush and Blackalicious and that whole label and the the deal with A and M and the deal with Ireland and how that all went down. He just it was it was too close to home at that point. It had only been a few years since the label had folded. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember going down there. I remember going to Labrook Grove in the early noughties to interview Naigo, a Japanese Phase Eight guy, innit? Who, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I interviewed them in the in the Moax offices um, for a kind of. I mean, that almost felt like a vanity release. I don't think anyone heard that really. Well, the Naigo James kind yeah, of collaborative. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's got it's got some good songs on there. It's oh, got it's got some crackers good. on there, but it it just it didn't feel like it was ever a real release. Yeah, I mean, forever. Nigo is like this Japanese kind of creative director of a clothing brand that yeah. James became friends with, and they kind of decided to make music together because Nigo wanted to do kind of what what James is doing with the Uncle Projects himself. Mm. And so they, they made they made they made a record together, and and James is kind of like the unofficial ambassador of Bathing Ape clothing at that point in the in the in the late nineties. He was like kind of the, the only one that he was the kind of broke the brand, I think, in many ways in the UK. Um, I think really like kind of you know, opened it up to a lot of people in the UK who'd never heard of it. Yeah, yeah, because it was it was it was like him and probably a bigger level would have been the Beastie Boys shouting about it all the time. Exactly, yeah, and James close friends with Beastie Boys and made music with them, and obviously Mike D, 
was was famously on um, science fiction and some of the early uncle recordings were actually done with uh, mario cardato who's the beastie boys engineer and producer oh i didn't know that okay yeah they had a whole there's a good dvd extra all about that it's mm. not in the film because it's kind of kind of got a bit distracting from the main storyline but there is there's a whole like in 1995 they all went to la and las vegas and spent time at mario they, they recorded at meatloaf's house in um, Meatloaf's recording studio and Mario Cardato was there and Futura and they all tried to make some demos for the early Uncle stuff and it, it, it was terrible. Wow. Well, look, before, before we get into the details then about, about some of the details, let's just talk about the release. So, so after all this time, uh, the man from Mowax is getting a release. So what's happening yeah. as far as the release goes? Yeah, so we, we've been in festivals for two years and mm -hmm. we, um, the release film comes out on the 31st of August um, okay. with Trafalgar, Trafalgar releasing. Mm -hmm. um, partnering with uh, doing a lot of stuff with our screen as well. Yeah. Um, who are kind of co-owned and not co-owned, but there's a, there's a um, relationship very close between Trafalgar and our screen. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and we're doing, yeah, we're, it's in like about, about 60, 60 different uh, screenings going on from the 31st of August. It's also screening outside the UK and New York, um, setting up screenings at the moment that are happening in LA and okay. um, and there's screenings in Antwerp, the screenings it's got a theatrical release in Australia and New Zealand with Curious Film so you can see it out there in a few places um, and then there's a, sort of it's one of those like uh, short windows so if you do go and see it in the cinema you actually get 10 minutes of extra content. Okay uh, so, so what we can do is in the show notes we can put a link to your official site where people can yeah. see what the listings are hopefully nearest to them. Yeah, I mean, for an independent film our size, you know, hundred and our film costs, you know, you know, sub quarter of a million. Mm. So um, it's a very hard budget to to turn around. Um, the fact that it's got theatrical screenings, you know, in three different continents is pretty pretty damn good. No, game. no, it's amazing. No, it's it's an amazing story. I'm just thinking, you know, we can we can obviously just make the details available as well. It's a yeah. hell of an achievement. Yeah. I know that from from the three hundred odd filmmakers I've already interviewed on this podcast before. Any, yeah. British, any British film, never mind whatever budget it is, getting that much coverage is uh, is to be applauded. Um, so you're gonna. So if there's ten minutes extra, if people go to, go to get get, yeah. get to go, if you, go and see to, it, if you go to the cinema, you get you get some really cool extras. Really, this is incentivising the cinema experience. So at the top of the film, you get um, before the film, you get to listen to three brand new, never before heard Uncle tracks. Okay. Uh, from their new album, which is out later this year, which mm -hmm. is really cool. Um, so you just get to in black in blackness you know they just turn the screen off and just you just hear three uncle tracks wow, um, back cool, to back which is, cool and they've been specially mixed by james and his team for for the cinema experience which is really cool Brilliant. so that's how it opens you know it doesn't have trailers you get these three songs um and then then moves into the film and then at the end of the film stay tuned after the credits because then there's 10 minutes of extra extras about um Kind of trying to fill in the obvious questions people have off the back of um, of seeing the film. It's kind of the, that's the point of the extra ten minutes, and there's and and that footage will never be seen again because it's kind of the rules with cinemas. If you want to break the window, you know the whole idea of breaking the window so you don't do the three month wait between cinema release and home video. Yeah. Uh, so so in order to do that, in order for cinemas to say okay, we'll screen the film, then they basically um they say we have to have something exclusive that gives people a a reason to come. Well, that's a good lesson learned then, because I don't think anyone's covered that with me before. So that's interesting yeah. to know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't know that. But it was came through our distributors now. Screen. They were like, if we want to do this short window, so we're in cinemas for two weeks, mm. and we're going on to home video quite quickly afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then you know DVD, VOD, and all that. 
But are you going to be at any of the cinemas doing Q and A's? Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing several. There's the BFI one um, with the opening night, which mm-hmm. is in London. I'll be doing a Q and A with James, which will be fantastic. Yeah. He's doing. A, he's doing a DJ set afterwards in the BFI um, bar area. Oh, fantastic! Which, which is which is open to the which is open to the public. Should be really cool. So everyone should come. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. And then um, and then you've got the physical. You got. Are you going to do DVD and Blu-ray or just DVD? <coughs> DVD and Blu-ray. And there's um. And what do we get know, on that then? We're trying to get the whole like Lavelle style release. So there's like a the the BFI put together an amazing seven inch sized uh, kind of Blu-ray and DVD three disc box set. Well, so you get the Blu-ray, the DVD, and an extras disc. Yeah. And you get you get a forty I think it's forty eight page uh, making of book with like artwork from from James across the years. Um, some just showing how we made the film with a foreword by James Lavelle and producers notes and, and directors notes. It's like a little mini book. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, with some great artwork in there. Um, so that's the, the limited. That's only three thousand of them. The BFI producing their limited edition, uh, and then then we're doing like a normal DVD, and then there's a there's also a, a special HMV packaging edition it's called the Sci-Fi edition. Right. Like diff, diff, again, we're just following the way James released records, the yeah. way we're trying. So it's a collectible series. It's not just like just bang like a sleeve inside a DVD case and sell it for ten quid. We're trying to do really consider these things and. And make it something that's worth having on your shelf. Like we talked before about packaging mm. and about how now we've kind of come through the digital age. What that's done in terms of the effect on packaging and the effect on record packaging, is, I think it's really raised the bar. It's like you can't just, if you want to do physical product, you can't just release it and hope for the best. You have to really have something that's special, something that people want to own. So mm. I think, and I think that's something James always did. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's jump on that one then, because I think I think it's part of that conversation we started, and that made us start recording the podcast. So we didn't just leave it all in in the in the in the room, as it were. Um, One of the key one of the key narratives that I thought that your documentary does brilliantly is, Mm -hmm. sadly for James, through his career, he he timed it. Oh, not sadly, because he he also had the happy bit. His career really was the sort of triumph of the peak of physical buying, where where we were being sold stuff about the third time round, and the, the the hunger for music in certainly in, in Western world terms was people were, couldn't buy enough stuff, and obviously someone like James who who took that stage further and made what he what he made interesting. And I suppose there's there's, there's mm-hmm. in that period you had people like um, other artists like you know spiritualized with the pill pop sort of CD thing and all that. So there was there was obviously innovation happening around. The CD, mm. because obviously the record, the twelve-inch record, had always been this iconic thing, and then then we began to make this digital thing, that which is just before the idea of uh, streaming and downloading music comes along. Which what we see then in your film is this this this, this d- drop in descent in sales numbers of physical product because the yeah. world isn't buying physical products anymore. So yeah, I mean it's all about it's all pivots the film on science fiction, Uncle mm. Science Fiction record, which. Was released in late, sort of late August, September '98, mm. which is when you look at stats and you look at history of the music business and you look at physical sales, that is the absolute peak period of when CDs were like 2.5 billion sales worldwide Fuck. every every year. Yeah, and then and then and then and then it literally falls off a cliff. And I mean, it's, that's exactly the time when Napster was starting. And so James's record that year was one of the most hyped and well received and you know bought records that year. Hmm. And then it's kind of weird because just as like the record industry starts having the rug pulled out from it, 
like James's record label it has the, the the you know the rug pulled out from it. You know he loses his financing deal and the film tells the rest of the story. So it's it's kind of yeah, like you said, he embodies in a certain sense the way the direction of the of the industry at that point. Yeah, his his story is is also the macro story of the music industry, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the idiotic stuff and the crazy stuff and the exciting stuff that he did that was his own innovation is, is, is his story for sure. But, but it's, it's beautiful, I think, that, that like a second level you can overlay over your film is actually this is a document that shows you, you know, the way that, the, the, the way that we, we as people consume music has changed in yeah. what is only really a decade period, isn't it, that that, yeah. that kind of that time travels in terms yeah. of documentary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it goes from. I mean, the film covers kind of starts in the in the late eighties and ends in two thousand and fourteen. So it's like two and a half decades of James's life, like you know, a quarter century of of a man's life. It covers that, and then the the change that goes on in the music industry in that time is, you know, is probably the biggest change it will ever go through. I think the music industry. I don't know if it'll ever have that level of upheaval and change. I mean, the the whole deal that James was a very small pawn in. Which was the um, the mega merger between Polygram and Seagram, mm. which actually in a massive conglomerate gin brand. Yeah. Then, then, and then that gave birth to Universal Music as we know it today. So that James was a very small pawn. You know, Polygram owned A and M, and A and M financed Moax, and then then it all got merged together, and suddenly A and M and Island became one, and all the back catalog. And it's all messy and. But it's a very interesting to see how when you're at the bottom of that pile, how it affects your life, basically. No, for sure, for sure. And uh, and no matter how much I I would have perceived as an audience member, James was was a massive star in the music world. Your documentary reminds you that conglomerates are much bigger than individual artists, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest, he needs. I, you know, the the thing I think everyone says, oh. As the film documents, the thing that kills it is that James decides to become the artist. I don't think that's true at all. I think the thing that really kills it is that James is financing and that the people in the larger organization that were funding Moax resign and disappear. So then he doesn't have that backing. He doesn't have that high end rate, uh, you know, record industry exec believing in him. And I then suppose, that becomes so, but I, I that becomes harder to do what he what he really wants to do. And and the knock on effect of that is that everyone thinks he's, he's he hasn't been you know looking after the the shop so to speak because it, it you know everyone gets moved over all the back catalogue gets moved over from Moax to to Island Records without them having any say. And everyone's kind of thinks that's all James's fault because he didn't read the small print of the contract. No, yeah, I can see that, but but also in terms of what you show us and what what I kind of know about how it how it kind of went is that you you see him collaborate with some amazing artists and then really get pissed off that he's not getting as much credit as he thinks he deserves for what's happening and yeah and, and while bringing people together is a skill mm -hmm. it isn't the same as 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 literally making music is it it's, it's that thing about you know if you've got the magic keep the magic in the room don't don't make you the only person in the room and i think <laughs> that maybe he pushed too many too much magic out of the room and left with just him i mean that's the that's the epicenter of the film that question isn't it mm. this is like it's like is it valid what james brings to the table and I, I truly believe it is i really think like if you value i mean it's a film podcast and you you have directors on the show every week mm. and if you look at what a director does more often than not, he doesn't write the film, he doesn't shoot the film, he doesn't edit the film, he doesn't compose the film, he doesn't act in the film, mm. but, it's, but it's his film. 
and I, or her film, or her film. So the the idea that James can't be the same with music is preposterous, really. I think James just makes music like film directors make films. Oh no, no, I, I don't. I don't think it's invalid. I just think that he yeah. he he. He didn't like the fact that he didn't get enough credit. It's like it isn't. It oh, isn't, yeah, that, yeah, he, isn't that he wasn't important to the mix. It's just that when I mean, I've heard I've heard some cracking stories from other things, you know, where people invest in movies and then they get rid of the talent that made the film possible because they think they now can make movies. And you're like, how stupid is that? You just had a success yeah. story with people that are really talented, yeah. And you, and you just made your money selling bloody fish, and then suddenly <laughs> because you've got a lot of money, you just think I can now make movies because I've made a successful one. Yeah, and it's that. No, I odd... think, yeah, yeah, I think it's unfair on James as well because you know the, the credits thing that kind of does kind of burn him in a sense. It kind of really it kind of stays with him for a long time. And the, the way DJ Shadow refuses to allow James to have writing credits. Now, at the time, I know you know the, the reason James accepts it is because he owned the publishing company that Shadow's publishing went to. So in a way, he kind of got fifty percent of it anyway. Mm. If you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 complicated, but I, I think ultimately that because what happened after that record, he, he takes no writing credits on science fiction, and then what happens afterwards is 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 he loses the label rights. So it's kind of like it's that horrible, like you know, you know, those two things happening at the same time that really that really yeah, it's like, kind it's of like a horrible. It's a horrible one too, isn't it? Really, yeah. it's it's uh, but uh, so for, so for, uh, for such a long period of time for, to cover such a long period of time, and, and yeah. I get the impression. Um, it seems to have from conversations we've had in the past and, yeah. and also just that recent interview you sent me that a key factor for you to be able to make, you know, once deciding you're going to make this documentary was James giving you access to his archive, his extensive archive of stuff. Was, yeah. Was, was part of the, part of the bit that made it possible to make the movie. Yeah. Um, so as, as someone that's been so immersed in, in James Lavelle's story, um, from what you thought going into it, and obviously you got you got to know him through doing those those tour videos and stuff. So you kind of you kind of must have had a sense of who the man was. What what for mm. you as the as the director of this documentary was was maybe your um, your favourite or most surprising discovery out of the James Lavelle story? Um, <laughs> uh, let me have a think. My favourite or most surprising discovery. Um, I mean, I say that because obviously you can go, <laughs> you go into, you go into something with with somebody who's already quite notorious and 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 got celebrity. So you've got a big perception about about him and what yeah. he's done and what he's achieved. And it's it's no secret how successful the albums were. It's no secret how cool the label was and so on and yeah. so forth. But but obviously you've you've gone. You've dug deeper than, than most people ever will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've then constructed a story about him. But but in that in that in that journey and that through that time, I just think there must there must have been some stuff about him or about the story that you kind of there's no way you could have expected it. Or you were glad to discover it, you know, as in like, Christ, look what we found. Oh oh so in terms of the the archive, I mean that was a huge turning point. The probably the most annoying thing I found out about James is that he was a Tottenham fan. But we won't <laughs> go into that. Um uh, but being a gooner myself anyway but um um no in terms of the archive it was like a three-year period before james i think accepted that we weren't we weren't coming to the project with the idea of making a fast buck on his name right Does that okay. makes sense yeah, yeah, and yeah. i think that that takes a, a, a time is the only thing that builds that level of trust that allows someone to go okay if these guys were here to just do something quickly 
you know, make a quick documentary and then move on, they would have done it by now. Yeah, and, um, it's not, so, and it's not surprising, given the story, that he would be that suspicious. <laughs> yeah, because people, exactly, and people, exactly, I think people have used James to leverage themselves up to another level in the music industry, that's documented. Uh, but, so once after, I think we built that trust with him, that we weren't here to, you know, to, you know, to try and, to try and tell a story that wasn't true, or just try and, like, bang something out that wasn't, like, authentic and real, I think then, it was then that he basically, I remember we were just, it was just me and him, we'd just done a little catch-up interview, it was like a, an evening in, he was at his Edgware Road uh, studio. And he, I just I just asked him again, because I've been asking him a few times, have you got any archive yourself, like anything mm. um, that you think could be interesting for this? Because this was, we were still filming. It was still in the, so this was kind of like 2010, 20, 2009. And he said, yeah, do you know what? And he went into this storage cupboard that he had and he went and he just looked through a few boxes and he pulled out this Tupperware box of, full of mini DVs, and all sorts of old formats. And he said, I think there's something on there. <laughs> and these were unlabeled tapes, unlabeled mini DV. Some of them were formats like, I've told the story, like the micro MV for all, you know, if this is podcast often filmmakers listen to. So it's like micro MV is a small format that Sony put out when they were doing all their handy cams back in, you know, the, 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 the mid to early nineties, they made wow. their own format of tape, which is kind of a, a quarter sized of mini DV, really small, really, really small tape. Yeah. And, and so there, there were loads of them in there. We, we didn't know how to even play it. You know, no, not even, none of the, the post houses in Soho have any kind of professional way of digitizing this like you would for most other formats. Mm. So real home video, you know, consumer format. So you ended up, and it, it died out by the time I got hold of the tape. So we had to go on eBay and we had to find, we waited on eBay for a few months trying to find a player. Eventually one just popped up. So we bought it, I think for like, you know, 60 quid or something. And then we then just put these tapes in to see what was on them. And it was on those tapes that we found James recording with Tom York from Radiohead and DJ Shadow at Skywalker Ranch, George Lucas's place, making Rabbit in the Headlights. And James didn't even know it was there. Good uh, it, was an unla- it was an unlabeled tape so it's, it's kind of bonkers but that was probably the greatest discovery i had of yeah. like oh my god yeah well, is that because you you kind of knew this is this is the gold that we need to have in the documentary is that why is that why it was such a, a fine discovery for you yeah i mean i was you know i think any documentary really rests on how unique its footage is and how it's, it's un, you know the undiscovered or unsold story Mm. And so when you find when I found that I was like no one's ever seen this. This is like I feel like I was the second person in history to see it because it was filmed by James in the studio looking at Tom York doing the song. Mm. So when I found it, that was a really special moment. Yeah, it sounds it sounds given given what else we see in the documentary, it's kind of like if you remember shooting the video, you weren't really there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now I mean to. to the, the 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 narrative arc you take us on is is actually quite the hero's journey, isn't it? You know, if you were to script it as a as a piece of fiction, not not a story of someone's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You may well choose what actually happened to him, if that's not to be too crass it's, about. It's it. absolutely the hero's journey. It's like, I mean, James, as the same film is a Star Wars fan. Star Wars nuts. Mm. He's one of those Star Wars nuts that you know still got some of the original line of toys, and is like proud. That he has, you know, like Atats and, you know, the Ewoks. Is, is, is he angry about Last Jedi or is he happy with it? Uh, uh, 
<laughs> just as an I, aside. I, I, he doesn't like any of them. I, don't, he, I spoke to him about Force Awakens in depth, and he was just like, it's just retro nostalgia. He wasn't, but... Anyway, anyway, sorry, go on, go on. No, no, that's... But he's a massive Star Wars nut. Mm. And you can, you know, there are Star Wars samples in science fiction. So, and, you know, there's a point in the film where he, he wears the Darth Vader outfit, mm. which is a brilliant piece of footage we found from a Channel 4, late night Channel 4 show. And, like, so that obsession, I, I really thought his, his story was like Luke Skywalker's in a weird way, structurally. Not, not actually like that. So I did deliberately. Well, well he is. The, the, bo- the boy from the village on the, the in boy the middle from of the village who discovers this force being hip hop. Yeah. And then journeys away to try and become a master at it. And, um, and you know, and has highs and lows. And there are, there are mentor figures, the mentor being, you know, Grandmaster Flash. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are best buddy sidekicks who disappear and come back, who we won't name because we don't want to give away the, uh, the ending. But yeah, you know, I think structurally there were just so many similarities and it wasn't like done. You know, I didn't copy Star Wars, but structurally in terms of the beats, in terms of, you know, the whole everyone knows these kind of filmmakers all know these kind of these the things, the things you have to hit at certain moments to kind of maintain. A but certain there's, one, there's one thing to have to hit them. There's another thing having having to, the, have, the, to have yeah. the real story in his life. Yeah, I know. And I, that, but that's what I mean. It wasn't it was structured, but it was structured because it was in front of me if you know what i mean it was they were there for the taking it was obvious that was the best way of telling the story and it was it was a happy coincidence that well, but, with, but, with, but, but i'm guessing i'm guessing it it sounds really easy when you say it like that uh, <laughs> so how how when you're making a film with so many different ways to go and let's let's be honest when you're writing fiction yeah the great thing is you always want a character to have the easy path or the difficult path and the dramatic one is always the difficult path you know to make this make us sort of care about what they're doing and stuff so when you're in a different way you're kind of looking at all the pieces on the table and you're looking at a thousand million other ones that have got no use to you but you've Mm -hmm. got you've somehow got to eradicate what's not useful and bring it down to what is it's kind of a weird it's a weird way of going about storytelling so how how do you avoid sort of i mean i guess in business world they call it project creep wouldn't they where you just think i've got to tell everything but obviously you've still only got two hours yeah, it's so important. I think one. I think the biggest thing I've ever learned about filmmaking is is structure, and I think it's the most important thing. And the great films all have amazing structure. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm, and 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 so, so so, and I think as a documentary filmmaker, you're you're not trying to tell. It's really important. And I, I said I had this conversation with James many times when he wanted certain things in there mm. that I didn't I didn't think were important. I said, James, I'm not I'm not making a visual Wikipedia page. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not just listing the things you've done. That's not what. That's not what this film's about. The film is about distilling, like, what is the essence of the truth, yeah. and dis- distilling that into what embodies every story and every soundbite and every little thing that people told me of what James was, and then trying to reveal a bit more about why that is. So that's that was my task. And the, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in, you know, my, my editor Alec was amazingly helpful in this in terms of he you know being completely cutthroat and going yeah that's a great soundbite but we've repeated it and we said it earlier and we don't need it and so having a great editor alec was fantastic in helping me stick to just being precise with what we did you know across a five to ten minute period and how that fell into 
the overall structure that we were trying to build. And, you know, and trying to just, it's just about being disciplined. It's just mm. about going, okay, well, I know I, I, I can't spend more than half an hour on building up what Moax was. And, you know, by the half an hour point, I've got an established uncle and DJ shadow and we need to be right in the thick of things. Mm. And then, and then it, or then, and then structurally it has to, you know, these are things that, I think every filmmaker goes through. It's kind of like if you were, if if you were to have this conversation with the public, they'd probably be bored quite quick. But you know, in you have to. It's it's the thing that the you know a regular cinema audience don't notice, but I think it's the most important thing to make a film successful. In that, if you're you have to be rigid to certain things happening at certain times, and if you mm. if you start sw allowing that to drift the film overall will feel like it's drifting and feel like it isn't hitting its story points. And then ultimately people walk out going, that's a bit boring and too long. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. I, I, interviewed, I interviewed the guy who did uh, the ballad of Shirley Jones, the folk singer. Yeah. And he, he was desperate when he said he was talking about, desperately wanted to avoid the, the rockumentary format of album one was this, album two was that. You know? Yeah, because which we do, which, which I do, to be honest. I mean, I do... I chronologize at the same time I wanted to do that because I, what was amazing about Moax and Uncle to me is that it was a genre of music that I thought was quite niche and underground mm. and I wanted to expose it to a bigger audience. So whilst I was trying to tell this very tight structural story, as you say, the hero's journey, mm. like, you know, kind of trying to mirror James's biggest influence in Star Wars through his own story. I was, I really wanted to just kind of do that. My chapters in that were the albums. But, I, but, I, but I, I must admit, though, from from an audience point of view, though, I didn't feel like I was watching a rockumentary. I think, right, right, right. And, and from and I guess this is more of a bad personal thing than it is about a film thing, because obviously I'm watching a documentary where, for the first time, I can say I lived through this. Yeah. And you kind of have your own questions before you even start watching. You're like, well, oh, what will it be about that? What will it be? And I guess the one of the highest praise thing I can say is that. It actually remind, you reminded me of what a fucking good time we all had. And, yeah. and, and it, that's not a specific thing about the fact that I don't, I don't own, I own a handful of Mowatch records. I, don't, I wasn't the avid collector of them, but I was very aware of it because it was hard not to be. But, but I it think was you... so important, so important because it was, it was fun, you know, mm. what James did. And what James did, you know, in terms of meeting all the Britpop crowds, Becoming, you know, a cool guy, a DJ at the center of that whole world, going out every night, mm. you know, in the in the midnight, mid to late nineties, it was it was just it was a I was I think it's one of those things everyone wants to be a footballer and everyone wants to be a rock star, and James in some way does have that rock star element. He's not a rock star in your like conventional sense, doesn't play, but you know he he did have that kind of life at a young age, which is incredibly fun and is what a lot of the reason one of the big reasons people buy into music because you want to be part of that wow that just looks like he's having such a good time i was going to say you know? yeah he didn't he didn't feel like he was he was faking it at all it was definitely oh, yeah. i'm going to run at this wall until the wall stops me <laughs> yeah which is great and, and and you want that in your you want that in your entertainment you want to have someone just living a life that is very few people get the chance to live mm. and seeing what that's really like. I think that was definitely one of the huge appeals of the film. I'm really pleased that you, you got that from it. No, for sure. Well, like I say, it's interesting for me because like, as, a, as, a, as, a, as the opposite of that, watching something like The Ballad of Shirley Jones, yeah. I, I wasn't around in the 50s. I wasn't around in the 60s. I wasn't around hardly in the 70s. You know, it's like, but, but to hear someone talk your way through their life and what it was like and observing it becomes mm. an interesting story. Whereas, whereas, 
what, what you what you remind me of what you remind me of yours was a what a great time it was not not that oh yeah that piece of information is exactly as I remember it <laughs> you, you just ca it's capturing a, mo a mood as much as it is some of the specifics and I think I didn't know about too much about James the personality and that's the other side of it that I really enjoyed um, yeah I mean I couldn't be him that's for certain I think yeah. I'd drive myself mad being yeah. being what is and I get the impression from the documentary at least. That, yeah. that he, he's he's flown close to the wind himself a number of times. and Yeah, definitely. And you, you look at stories of like Avicii right now, who just died. Mm. And that guy had a similar lifestyle to what James had in those nights. You know, that was, you know, yeah, I, like, I remember James saying, in, um, we, I remember we, you know, Amy Winehouse goes at, went at 27, you know, that classic yeah. age yeah. when people, when, when rock stars die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it Jim Morrison? Anyway, but the, Kurt Cobain, the old Kurt Cobain, the old. and and that and you, you look at what what James was doing when he was twenty seven. That was what happened. He'd had the hits, the the label had failed. He was a DJ. He was having he was living a nocturnal lifestyle, where it was just you know partying every night, out in clubs, and that's the point at which people, some people, it, it takes them. You know, when when you when you are living that unique lifestyle as being a a megastar and, and, and you are the center of the universe and you're up late every night and then you're out, you know, some people don't come back from that. And so it's, that's why I quite like the story is kind of, there's a cautionary tale element to it. Mm. Now I'm not going to pretend I thought of this question cause I'm dead clever. You, yeah, you, you yeah. give me the heads up about, um, about, <laughs> about, um, his co-founder of the label, Tim, well, Tim Goldsworthy. That's, that's the big debate, isn't it? I, well, yeah. Well, as, well. as, as, as he's, as I googled him after you spoke to me, after you mentioned him to me before yeah. we started recording the podcast, you know, it kind of in 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 wiki terms it, and and various other places, it sort of describes him as being a co-founder of the label. Mm -hmm. So you you decided to he's he's not in the narrative as it were yeah. for your for your documentary yeah. clearly, yeah. Um, yeah. and so why why would he be omitted is 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 I guess the the big the big question is there any is there any strong reason for that or was it was it just a, a creative one from your point of view? So there's there's two things going on. There's there's first of all the facts, and then the secondly the uh, the reasons behind not including Tim Goldsworthy. Mm. The facts are as there. I mean, there's a DVD extra about this, mm -hmm. but which, which we did because we didn't include it in the film. But it is it is interesting. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't interesting enough for the film, which I'll go into in a minute. But ultimately, James. And Steve Finan were the co-owners of Moax. Right. If you look at if you look at companies' house records, there is no record of a Mr. Tim Goldsworthy ever forming a company called Moax. Okay. So the, the whole idea that he founded it is is ultimately false. Yes, James. Uh, James initially did Moax as a as as the film documents as a as a column in Straight No Chaser. Previous to that, he'd done club nights in Oxford under the name Moax, please. Yeah. And um. And Tim Goldsworthy had helped him to do those nights in the sense of, you know, he, he, James had asked him, can you, do you want to come and start doing these nights with me? And then when James started doing the label, he invited Tim in to start doing because James wanted to make music. Mm -hmm. And Tim, Tim was very young at the time and wanted to start to make music. So they were friends from Oxford. And then they started, they st I say started Uncle. They made four singles at the time, which mm -hmm. came out. This is before science fiction. Yeah. Now, so that's, and then what happened was at some point before science fiction, James makes a decision to go with DJ Shadow over Tim Goldsworthy's key collaborator. And there was, there was a whole period, like I mentioned earlier in the interview, where 
they went to LA and they tried to do this collaborative thing between Shadow and Tim Goldsworthy and tried to kind of work together. And for a multitude of reasons, it didn't work out, mm-hmm. which is documented in the, on, on the extra. But ultimately, it was boring. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, it was really like it was hard to tell the story of this of this um this guy from Oxford who was quite an introvert. Um, there is one interview with him he did back in the mid nineties uh, under Uncle, which again is quite. Is, is is not the most interesting thing you've ever seen mm. and 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 it was just like so here's a guy who didn't really co-found the label and we've got james on camera you know he's saying he didn't, you know that's just wrong the wikipedia is wrong as i'm sure it's this isn't the first time wikipedia has been wrong he didn't co-found the label james started the label it was james I, james's idea it was also james's idea to start uncle and he invited tim in to be a partner on it and mm. he worked with not just tim but another guy called kudo who's a japanese producer um, and other guest vocalists on those early uncle, the early uncle material, and just telling that story as I've just told it to you starts to become quite laborious because ultimately it doesn't lead anywhere. It just leads to we didn't make an album. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in, in again, it, going back to what we were just discussing in narrative, and you have to kill your darlings, and it would have been nice, but it, it would have slowed down the first act of the film immeasurably. It would have added another character you have to establish build up and then take away yeah. and, and 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 it wasn't very interesting and the music is okay nothing more than that so it's not even like i'm missing out i don't think this is my opinion mm. on this amazing treasure trove of early uncle material i don't see it like that so those are the reasons why he wasn't involved I mean, i've had criticism from it in a couple of um you know a couple of um poorly judged uh um reviews because it's like They've just gone to Wikipedia and gone, well, he's not included the founder. Mm. And I'm like, okay, well, he wasn't the founder. So anyway, that's why we've made this DVD extra all about that, because it's, it's a question mark. And I can understand why it's a question mark, because there is this law around him allegedly being the founder, co-founder of Moex, but he isn't. And, you know, so that's kind of the first thing. And yeah, we, we did. We also asked him to be part of the project on a mm. number of occasions, and he just didn't return emails. And so it was just like, well, I can't make this any more interesting by maybe he, he could, maybe it could have been part of it if we did this amazing interview with him where he kind of shone a light on certain things we didn't know about but that wasn't there and so it just kind of became a, a non-event so and we wanted to keep the narrative fun and exciting um so anyone who's a super moax fan really interested can hear that story in the on the extras but really for for the people that that just come to this for the first time have never heard about moax never heard about uncle and never heard about dj shadow it would have really hampered the film. Now, now, as a as a as a filmmaker, Sorry, that was a long answer. Sorry. No, I liked it. No, I'm glad you. I'm glad. I'm glad you told me to ask the question, <laughs> uh, or at least look into the idea of asking it. And, and it, 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 I understand now what you mean. So, in 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 a roundabout way, an unwillingness to be involved, plus actually what you could glean from the facts that were available, it just yeah. wasn't that interesting to 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 the overall story you were already telling. It didn't it didn't add or take away from what you were already doing. Yeah, again, going back to structure, at this point in our film, when Tim would have had to have been introduced, we're, we're kind of on the up. James has started this label. He's working with all these cool people. He's just discovered DJ Shadow. Mm. He's um, he's working with DJ Crush. Um, he's signed a big financing deal with a major label. And then suddenly to have to slow down and tell a story about this guy who was there, but didn't really didn't really end up doing much with him because it didn't work out, would have just, it would just slowed down the whole thing. And it just, it wasn't very interesting. And that's that's it. 
you know that's just that it was and it was sad because there's no doubting he's a, he's an important part of the story but it just it just you know some things some things have to hit the cutting room floor you know what i mean and it's just that was the thing that was the thing that it would have made the opening of the film 10 minutes longer to have tried to include him and it, it wouldn't have worked now you've you uh, had your world premiere what was it 2016 at south by southwest yeah yeah, it was just weird though because it was called Artist and Repertoire back then. Uh, I don't know. So basically, we, we originally screened the film under the name Artist and Repertoire. Uh, I saw 2000... it. I, I saw it in Frank, at Frankfurt at London Film Festival, and it was Man from More Works by then, wasn't it? Yeah. So originally, it was, we we got into South by Southwest, and yeah. we never expected to actually get selected. We basically screened a rough cut. Oh, you know? okay, okay. So we, 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 we told them it was the final version, but it wasn't. You know, it wasn't finished. We, after that version, the film came down 20 minutes in length. We had, about, we had about six new interviews included. Mm. So we crammed more interviews in and got it down in length and added loads of archives. So it was, it was a great opportunity for the film to sort of open up to a bigger audience. And we were like, if we turn this down, are we always going to regret it? So we just went for it. Mm. Um, because then it did really have a great positive effect on the film and... So, so for, for, for the filmmaker sat at home now twiddling their thumbs and wondering whether or not they'll ever see the world, um, tell, tell us about your experience about going to places like South and Southwest with your movie. Yeah. What's, what's that I mean, like in terms of, obviously you start off with this, this idea and you're going to show it, and then suddenly yeah. something as prestigious as South and Southwest says, please come and show your film, and then you go. What's that experience like for the filmmaker, for you, from your point of view? Do you know what? There's a video my producer's got where he filmed me when he told me the news because my producer, Mac, had the email. <laughs> and he, he said he, he filmed me and he said and he told me the news whilst filming me. And I went, <laughs> I was very happy. Let's put it that way. Because um, it was it is a bit of a game changer when, you know, I'm, I'd never directed a feature film. And for your first feature film to get into a festival like that is like that's as good as it gets. So it was a great feeling getting into it. Um it's also, an, it's also an amazing fit, isn't it? Because given, given the way that the 360 view of the world that James went about his creative thinking, South by Southwest is a music, film and technology festival, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it was really great. You know, we had three screenings there. I had, I had a wonderful time. You know, we, we went to the whole festival because we, we were showing the film festival. We got mm. access to the music and tech stuff too. And, and it's, it's a great place to be. It's, you know, like the film festival is quite tame. The music bit is like they dropped Glastonbury into the centre of a city. It's Blimey, really? Yeah. It's ridiculous. And there's like everywhere has live music. I mean, everywhere. And like, it's kind of crazy, really. It's kind of crazy. Was, um, uh, was, was, was Brian looking after you? Uh, well, yeah, Brian, yeah, is in Austin. Yeah, but we have an American <laughs> producer, for those that don't know. So, yeah, we had a lovely place to stay in. But, I mean, the thing is, it's expensive. You know, that was, it's, you know, the bottom line is... They didn't, you know, we, we weren't in, we weren't the, 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 the headliner. I wasn't, I, I wasn't for one, so, one thinking so about, I mean about the... the experience of going around the world for like two years is expensive because you have to, you have to dig into your own pockets, pay for it. Yeah, and we yeah. didn't have like, you know, like I said, we're an independent doc. So we had, we had some, some small support from the BFI for completion funding, mm. but none of that went on like our flights. You know, like a lot of it, 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 you know, it was like we had to get ourselves out there to make the opportunities. Mm. And it was fantastic. I've been to all over the world with this film. Been to Australia, been to Italy, been to Spain, Portugal, America, um, Moscow. It's been really fantastic. And that's one of the benefits of making a film if it's then successful at festivals. You do get to be, and some of the festivals have treated us so well. It's been so fun. 
just seeing all these places that I would never have gone to otherwise. Um, so it's been yes, it's 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 really good fun when you know, and and then everyone just wants to treat you really well because they're so happy they they're showing your film, mm. and it's just you get, you get treated really nicely. It's been a wonderful experience. Well, look, so let's remind everybody then. So when's the film out? The, the film is out on the thirty first of August. Cinemas nationwide. Find out all about it. Themanfrommowax.com. Okay, we'll put uh, that link. Sorry, it's on home video um, on, from the 10th of September. I love the fact you say home video. Home video and digital download, VOD, SVOD to own, however you'd... Is that going to be what iTunes, ways Sky, in which... iTunes, Sky yeah. Movies, Google Play and all that? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, thanks very much for, uh, for uh, biding your time before you came on the Britflix podcast. It's very so so we'll, I'll see you in 12 years for my next film. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I look forward to it. I look forward to it. There'll be, there'll be, there'll be a space for you, don't worry. And, right. uh, and yeah, no, congratulations and uh, good luck with the release. Well, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, I've been listening to this podcast, you know, since we met. So like, it's really great to be on it. And thanks so much for having me. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. 